Welcome to the Hidden Why Podcast, episode 1045, my interview with Dr. Ron Sinner, and we're discussing optimal health and wellness. Enjoy. Hello, Dr. Ron. Welcome to the Hidden Why Podcast. Great to be here. Thank you. Thanks for coming on the show, mate. Lots to uh, talk about today in your field of expertise, health and wellness. Um, maybe give us a little bit of a glimpse into to what you actually do at the moment, mate, with, with this uh, field of uh, research. Yeah, well, I'm, I'm an internal medicine doctor by training. Um, uh-huh. And so, you know, I have a general primary care practice that I've been running for some time. And I'm in the middle of Silicon Valley. So, you know, around all the big tech companies here in Northern California. And yeah. over the years, what I started noticing is I started seeing um, a lot of patients coming to my clinic that were just developing a lot of chronic health conditions like diabetes and heart disease at a relatively early age and a pretty diverse population here as well, too, as you can imagine with the tech population, people from all parts of the world. Um, but, but I sort of realized at that time that, you know, the types of things that I was seeing in the clinic were very different than what, what I'd learned about in medical school. So as a result of that, what I started doing is I started going out to the companies directly to start lecturing and talking about, you know, wellness in the workplace. Yeah. Um, and as a result of that, kind of fast forward today, I've been just running a lot of wellness programs for these companies. I've got a clinic that's almost exclusively focused on lifestyle habits to really reverse chronic metabolic health conditions. So really teaching employees and workers about what metabolism means and what are the daily habits that can really help them optimize their metabolism so they don't don't develop the typical chronic health conditions like obesity, diabetes, and heart disease, which unfortunately Mm. are presenting earlier and earlier in our population. So that's been sort of the the, the body of work that I've developed. So So you jump in with organizations and then help individuals within that organization or is it more the individual reaches out to you and you help them directly? So normally who reaches out to me is uh, it's basically the HR leadership. So the human resources departments are always looking for ways to engage their employees around different programs. So it might be me coming in for a lecture. It might be a clinical service that we're offering to employees. Um, So now we're working on digital health programs as well too. One area of expertise I've sort of developed in my clinical practice is putting glucose sensors on people, you know, so they can manage their glucose and sort of see what's happening to their metabolism as a result of stress and sleep and different lifestyle habits. And, And we can definitely talk more about that if that's of interest, but it's a game changing device. You know, wearables are kind of all the rage, right? But these glucose sensors are uh, really, really incredible ways for people to get a brief peek into their metabolism during their daily chaotic lifestyles and see what sleep, stress, and all these, you know, lifestyle habits might be doing to their metabolism. Yeah, well, lots uh, lots in this space at the moment, isn't there, to, to help us yeah. um, better navigate our health and wellness. What are the, um, I mean, what what is perhaps one of the, well, maybe a couple of the biggest issues you see through modern day workplaces that are really having the impact on health and wellness? Yeah, I mean, I think the key thing is, you know, if you were to sort of um, select out what I think is probably the condition I'm most focused on and prioritizing, it really is that underlying heart disease risk. Um, You know, heart disease continues to be the top killer in men and women globally. But um, sometimes those risk factors can be um, pretty insidious and they can be very subtle early on. So unfortunately, the medical system often we are kind of more reactive than proactive. So it's not until you've got out of control, high blood pressure, high cholesterol, that we kind of react to that. But there's other subtle manifestations that can develop. So for example, 
I've had a lot of patients that all their numbers are actually perfectly fine on their lab reports, but it's really their sleep dysfunction and chronic stress levels and a little bit of extra girth around the stomach, that belly fat. And that's actually the imperfect storm of enough factors to drive early onset heart disease and diabetes. So, you know, a lot of the standard medical training risk factors that we think about with diet, exercise, those still hold. But, yeah. you know, I'm really uncovering a lot of other additional lifestyle factors that are just a function of our modern lifestyle habits, you know, that we just take for granted, right? Being on our screens till late at night, having disrupted sleep with the pandemic. Now, a lot of things have become much more accelerated. And believe me, I'm, I'm somebody who is just as much of a workaholic as many of my patients. But after I've seen enough cases of what this can do to their health early on, um, that's really made me prioritize some of the traditional risk factors, but also these additional modern day lifestyle factors as well, too. So to be more specific and quantitative, like seeing things like the elevated waist circumference or the belly fat, like we talked about. And on, on, on cholesterol panels, seeing just a lot of elevated cholesterol levels, specifically triglycerides, seeing a lot of fatty liver. So fatty liver is something in, in medical school we thought was basically just due to alcohol. But we're seeing a lot of folks that have never touched alcohol, but they're developing excess fat stores in their liver just from sedentary behavior and just eating the wrong types of foods as well, too. So really trying to take a holistic approach to these individuals and then give them some tools and lifestyle interventions that they can do in the midst of their really busy um, work lives. Yeah. Should we be working less? <laughs> yeah. I think we need to be working smarter. You know, so, so the thing is, for example, if sleep is an issue, um, you, you know, the thing is, if you leave your day and your evening open-ended, um, we tend to just sort of stretch our workout as long as it needs to be done. But, you know, like, for example, I brought up the glucose sensor. I can show in a lot of my patients by looking through glucose data that when they actually go to bed later, the next day, their blood sugar actually takes a major hit, you know? So literally when they go to bed after 11 PM or midnight, we see that their blood sugar becomes dysregulated for the next 24 hours. So when they actually have a view into that sort of data, that this is really this kind of habit of staying up late, working, watching a little Netflix or whatever, and then going to bed, as much as it seems like a calming ritual, it's actually having an impact on metabolism. So, so then the, the whole point is like, if you actually send, if you, if you set an endpoint to your day, and this was tough for me because I love staying up late at night and I saw the impact it had on my health and my blood sugar. But what I find now is how if I stay, really- Sorry, how does staying up late have an impact on blood sugar. Yeah. Yeah. Great point. So what ends up happening is that first, so if you look at the different sleep stages, even though sleep seems, seems like a dormant process, we are actually processing nutrients and our metabolism is actually active during the nighttime. So when we go to yeah. bed late, there are certain hormones that can actually help us regulate blood sugar in a much more stable way. But when we shift the bedtime later and we get less of that first half of the night's sleep, what we call deep phase sleep, we actually can't burn fat. We produce less growth hormone and growth hormone is something we need to retain muscle and move nutrients into our muscle as well. We end up shortchanging a lot of that when we actually end up going to bed later. So, so, and the other thing the chemicals too, are activated earlier in the exactly evening. That's exactly right. That's exactly right. Yeah. There's, there's a beneficial group of chemicals in the first half of the night. There's other chemicals in the second half of the night, but some of the critical ones for metabolism are really in that first half of the night where we get more deep phase sleep. So that's where that impact okay. ends up happening. Yeah. So they're, they're not activated due to sleep. They're activated due to the time of the day then. Is that how that works? Yeah. Well, some of it is a lot of this has to do with your circadian rhythm. So literally in 
the environment where you're at. So once the sun is down and it's pitch black at night, usually I'm giving you some general rules, but usually yeah. if it's more than two and a half to three hours beyond that time, that's when circadian disturbances end up happening basically. So, and the thing is, if we have like a fixed wake up time for those of us that have to get up at seven or eight, right. The later we go to bed, we're just missing more of that component of sleep. But some of this does have to do with our light cycles and you know, how long we're going um, to bed after the sun goes down and it's dark out as well. Hmm. Yeah. <laughs> but coming back to your, um, should we work uh, more or less? I mean, the key thing I tell people, the interesting thing is if you set your bedtime earlier and for some people, 11 PM is sufficient. Others find that their metabolism, their weight, everything's better when they get to bed by 10 PM. But if you already have a mental framework that this is when I stop. So if bedtime is 10 and screen shutdowns at 9 PM, you automatically become more efficient, you know, instead of kind of stretching your work and sort of doing the later work to make up for maybe not being as productive earlier in the day, you sort of, I found in my case, I'm just more proactive about getting stuff done as early as I can. So in most cases I can hit that earlier bedtime because I definitely see the impact it has on my health. Mm -hmm. Do you think um, by setting those goals, um, you know, knockoff times and, and well, just goals in general for the afternoon, evening ritual would help um, you sort of clear out the unnecessary and focus on the important stuff in your day-to-day -day life uh, and therefore you make you more efficient? That, that's a great point. I mean, I, I literally, if, if, if I'm going to get through everything I have to do during the day and hit the sack by 10 p.m., I need to get up in the morning. And first of all, I've got to physically like journal or make an outline of the things that I've got to complete. And that is sort of like my way of really prioritizing these four or five things. So I don't get caught up in, you know, the rad hole of being on the internet or researching something on metabolism, which seems interesting. But all of a sudden now I'm 45 minutes into some time where I should have been getting some of my key tasks done. But but you're, you're absolutely right. If you're going to consistently get to bed at that hour, it's like you've got to be organized and make sure you have that priority list. And, you know, the other thing, I didn't also mention too is this is actually a key point because so many of us, you know, aside from heart health, we're all about brain optimization. Like, how do we get the most out of our brain power? How do we reduce the risk of dementia and memory loss as we age? That first half of the night, there is a system in our brain called the glymphatic system, which was discovered not too um, long ago. And what this glymphatic system does is it is a cleansing system. There's actually a system of channels, kind of like our lymph vessels, that actually open up during deep phase sleep. And it actually clears all the metabolic byproducts from us thinking. So just like when we exercise, we generate metabolic byproducts like lactic acid in our muscles. When we're doing a lot of cognitive work throughout the day, there's waste that's actually developing in our brain. And the first half of the night is when that stuff gets cleared most effectively. So if individuals are having issues with feeling kind of foggy during the day, you know, memory, cognitive function, we're finding that that linkage with that glymphatic system activation is really key. So, so I use a lot of the science to motivate people because if you just tell somebody who's a workaholic, hey, get to bed earlier, that's not going to be enough for them. They need to know that, okay, this is having impact on my weight, my performance, my energy. So then when they start feeling more productive and realize that their brain can actually have more time cleansing itself to get ready for the next day, that's a little bit more empowering than just trying to twist their arm into getting to bed, you know, 30 minutes or 60 minutes earlier. Hmm. Are there outliers that you've come across where people that just seem to be able to work nonstop, sleep less and, and still be very there are a few active. of those, you know, <laughs> that's interesting. So, you know, it's a lot of people think that they've been given the lucky gene because, you know, they do the short sleep and they feel like, Hey, I'm, I'm a high performer at work. You know, I'm fit. I'm exercising all those things. But yeah. sometimes when we dig deeper into the metrics, we do uncover things on the lipid, the liver, or maybe the glucose sensor. Now there is genetically, 
this um, condition of short sleepers, people that basically can get by on less than, you know, five hours of sleep and have no health implications or impact on longevity at all. But the odds of you having that gene, it's actually more likely that you'd be struck by lightning than you that have that gene. So people kind of have thought that they actually have that short sleeping, but most people actually don't have that. But it's true that some people with six hours, they're okay. Whereas other people definitely need closer to eight or eight and a half hours. So there's some variability in terms of what that optimal time is. Okay. So schedule your your day in advance and know what you're looking to achieve at that, those closing times. I, I think it does help with, um, you know, I think a lot of people just get in with their day. Maybe they have a bit of a morning start to the day. Um, yep. And then once they get into work mode, they don't really have any shut off time parameters or anything to, to do with them, exactly. their own personal well-being at the end of the day. I, and right. I, I th- certainly have found that for me, setting a shut off time at five or six or whatever it might be, depending on the day. And then, right. you know, giving myself half an hour to meditate or, or do a bit of workout or something like that has, um, just help me be a more efficient in my day and, and stick to those times and setting your own personal goals um, seems to help with that. Yeah, that's awesome. You're doing that already. So that's, that's perfect. You're, you're definitely, um, you're practicing what I'm preaching, which is great. Not, not perfectly. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's hard to do perfectly. Hey, the other thing on exercise real quickly is um, there is some variability. I often get a question around when are sort of the optimal times to exercise and kind of the reflex answer is wherever you can fit it in. But but there are definitely some benefits. So one thing I see is especially with most of my workers being sedentary, you know, whether they're sitting or standing like statues all day is getting some dosage of morning activity upon getting up is really key. And I tell people your metabolism, it's kind of like an engine inside your car. And just like you're going to start up your car and warm it up in the morning, if we get up in the morning and we're already kind of sitting at the screen and taking care of work, our metabolism is in a very low flow state. And any you know calories and food we consume from that point forward, we're going to be less likely to burn that because we haven't generated any demand in our muscles. Okay. And really our metabolism is a demand-based system. So wow. even if you can get like 15 or 20 minutes of some sort of leg-based training in, whether it's a short series of HIIT training or just getting out for a brisk walk, it's going to at least rev up that metabolic engine a little bit. So you're burning more energy, more fats and carbohydrates while you're doing your mostly sedentary work. And then the evening if you have more time to do something a little bit longer and that works great for you, then, you know, get it in there. But what we find with the metabolism is the more you can distribute physical activity throughout the course of the day, because otherwise I have patients that do everything in the morning, then they sit like a statue or a rock for like several hours, or they sit all day and then the evening they get the workout. But it really looks like distributing that physical activity and energy throughout the day in the long run has a great impact on health, body weight, metabolism, all those things. Okay. Yeah, it's a good one. Um, so jumping out of bed in the morning, doing exercise straight away, or should we have a little bit of um, food first? Is there a preference there? Yeah. So it depends. I mean, I would say in many of my patients that are trying to lose weight or they already have signs of high cholesterol and high glucose and those types of things, it actually is a great practice to do some of that. You know, so you get up in the morning, having a little bit of coffee, if that's what you like to do to help yourself get up, fantastic. But then going for a brisk walk and getting some physical activity in a bit of a fasted state actually can have great health benefits because when you're in that sort of fasted state, any energy your body needs, it's going to actually tap into your stores of fat and triglycerides. So I tell people, you kind of want your metabolism, if, if you're carrying extra body weight, for example, you want your metabolism to be a little bit cannibalistic, meaning it's going to really eat your own energy stores rather than rely on outside food. So most of us actually don't need to eat in the morning, especially 
if you look back at your meal the night before or the lunch before, and you had a good amount of energy in the form of carbohydrates and fats, that food stays stored in your muscles and it's accessible as energy the next morning. And I find that when people do some of that physical activity after caffeine in sort of a fasted state, they just feel like they're on fire because their body's accessing those internal energy stores, their brain's really nice and active. And then they might get hungry an hour or two later and they might settle in for breakfast then. Others get up and they do fine. They'll have a light breakfast, go work out, and that works well for them too. But I find when people are trying to lose weight or hit some higher performance goals, at least a few days a week of sort of doing a caffeinated fasted you know, workout in the morning <clears throat> can work really well for them. Okay. And with, with regards to exercise in the evening or afternoon, um, again, have you seen anything there that actually creates more stress um, and therefore um, more porous sleep, I suppose, if you're active? Because I've actually got a, a wearable that I use and uh, maybe I overdo it. I'm not sure. Uh, I don't think I do. <laughs> um, but sometimes it says to me that, you know, perhaps you, you shouldn't have um, stressed yourself last night. And I don't know if that has to do with um, some other routine or is it actually to do with um, doing some exercise in the evening before rest? Yeah. You know, and, and these are such great questions you're asking. And I always fail to give like one standard answer because I see so much human variability in this. Yeah, the sure. advantages of the afternoon evening exercises, first of all, in the afternoon, usually when you look at people's performance in terms of aerobic and lifting strength, often it's a little bit better in the afternoon than it is early in the morning because your body's kind of warmed up. And I've also noticed, even though I mostly do my harder workouts in the morning, when I do get out there in the afternoon, I'm just able to lift heavier and I can just do a better workout. Now, now, there are some people that get more activated by late afternoon and evening workouts, and it actually can disrupt their sleep. And unfortunately, I'm one of those people. For my for my evenings, like the most I'll do is I'll walk with the wife or I'll walk the dog, but I'm not going to do much else to raise my heart rate. I have other patients on the other side that uh -huh. they need that high-intensity workout and weightlifting to actually sleep like a baby. It helps them counteract a lot of the daily stress, and there's, they, they sleep really well. So that exercise sensitivity in regards to sleep, there is variability amongst people, and all you can do is sort of self-experiment to see where you're at. One anecdotal observation I've had is people that tend to be more caffeine-sensitive Sensitive, it looks like they tend to be more exercise sensitive. And again, I'm one of those people. If I have caffeine after 9 or 10 a.m., it will destroy my sleep. Um, so stressful thoughts, exercise, caffeine uh, later in the day, those tend to sort of couple together and they can really cause more sleep disruption. So that's something you have to play around with, whether can you handle any exercise? What's the intensity you can handle? But for me, evening is all about doing things that are calming and slowing down my body and mind and high intensity exercise or doing something that's going to uh, raise heart rate um, doesn't help me in that case. And, and I'm wearing an aura ring, which is one of the many wearables out there. That's kind of showed it over and over that when I do something too intense, my deep base sleep goes down in the evening. So it kind of correlates with that. Yeah, right. yeah. Okay. And a good observation with the caffeine too, whether you're caffeine sensitive or not, and whether that'll affect you um, with the exercise as well. Um, yeah. And so then again, going through just moving throughout the day rather than doing just one workout session in the morning and then letting it go or, or one in the afternoon, but actually trying to incorporate some uh, form of movement throughout your day-to-day -day activities as well is, is beneficial for your metabolism. Yes, exactly. And I want to give you a, a tip or a hack because a lot of times what happens with my patients, they have an all or nothing approach to exercise. Either they're going to go, go and crush it out in the gym on a bike or on a run, or they're going to sit or stand like a statue all day. But they, they miss out all, all these in-between opportunities that are actually that gray zone, that middle zone between high intensity work and no work. That's actually what 
improves longevity and it can improve heart health. So literally just going out for the 15 to 20 minute walk, doing a walking meeting, and even the act of fidgeting, believe it or not, there's a study at Stanford University that shows that people that actually, even while they're um, talking, speaking, they're in meetings on Zoom, et cetera, if they're kind of tapping their knee up and down, they're moving their hands a lot. Like even while I'm doing this podcast, I'm standing, my legs moving, I'm actually doing a lot of hand gesturing. Through fidgeting, we can actually burn up to 2000 calories throughout the day through those high frequency lower intensity movements. And I've seen the impact on my patients' blood sugars and blood pressure just by doing that. And I don't mean nervous fidgeting. This is more kind of like I'm putting some energy into my work. My body's moving. Really what I tell people is I'm trying to trick my body and convince it that it's actually a physical laborer while I'm working. So literally sometimes I'm outdoors, I'm on a call, I've got some heavy weights outside, I'll walk them up and down. And when I also do that too, my my deep face sleep is amazing. Like if I can sort of stretch that workout, whether I'm in front of a screen and the video's off and nobody knows that I'm standing on one leg or that I just did like five push-ups, you know, doing those sorts of things, we have a term for that called exercise snacking, where you're snacking on movement rather than chips all day. That can be an amazing graze own way of sort of keeping the body very active and you know keeping metabolism revved up hmm. yeah keeps you um keeps you energized i think too just by moving a bit more and certainly i i find that afternoon small routine of a of, you know whatever it might be a little bit of a workout or a walk or something certainly picks your mood back up again as well and can totally you. and you you brought the key point keeping you energized is the key because otherwise people hit afternoon inertia and the act of going to a gym to work out seems impossible but when you do this sort of stretching out of physical activity, literally, you can ask me anytime during the day, hey, you want to go for a run? I'm ready to go because I've been stretching my hamstrings during my one-hour Zoom meeting. I've been moving around in a light way. So if there's an earthquake here, I'm going to be the first one out the door because I'm like ready for a race at any moment. That's the way I sort of think about my body. So even though it's a sedentary work that I do most of the time, I want to keep it prepped for movement at any moment. And then really ancestry and evolutionarily, that's what the bodies were sort of designed to do is to sort of be ready for action at any moment. Love it. What um, can you explain to me um, metabolism and blood sugar and, and how that works, maybe in simplistic terms? Yes, I'm going to give you a very simplistic model for this. And this is one that really sticks cool. in people's heads. So, so basically, when you think about glucose metabolism, the way I show this in all my work and my talks, as I tell people, think of glucose like being a car in the body. And we've got three parking lots. you got the muscle, the liver, and the fat parking lot. And in an ideal metabolism, if we were to eat something that raises our blood sugar, of that glucose energy should go to our muscle parking lot. So our muscle can store that and burn that for energy. And the way that glucose gets inside that muscle parking lot is by using insulin. That's the hormone that gets the carbs through the door. But when we say that individuals have insulin resistant, which unfortunately a big part of the population has, that basically means our body's producing insulin. The muscle is not actually responding to the signal. So if we can't get most of the glucose into the muscle, guess what it does? It goes to the other overflow parking lots. Our fat parking lot has unlimited space. It's open 24 seven. That's why we can gain hundreds of pounds of body fat. It will go there if the muscle lot's closed. It can go to the liver. The liver has limited parking space. So when it fills up with carbohydrates and extra fat from our diet, it'll actually spit that extra energy out as cholesterol particles and as glucose as well too. And this is what most of my patients are struggling with. And really metabolically, all the things we talked about, what I'm teaching people to do is let's get that glucose energy moving back towards muscle. 
If we do that, we're going to deflate or offload that fat parking lot. We're going to lose that body fat. We're also going to offload the liver. The liver is a central fulcrum of, of metabolism. So when excess traffic goes there, that's when sugar, inflammation, cholesterol, all that stuff goes up. So really, that's what we're trying to do. And that's, whole, that's why the concept of constant movement, exercise, the muscles will keep burning through carbohydrates. They'll have a greater demand for energy. So then when you're eating food, it's going to pull that food into the muscle like a magnet. So there are some days, as much as I try to do this stuff, sometimes I'm on a flight or I'm just sedentary and my muscles are not, they haven't worked at all. So then I'm very conscious about what I eat because if I have a stationary or a sedentary day and then I'm loading the body up, the muscles are going to say, Hey, listen, this guy's been sitting all day or standing. He hasn't done any work. Let's stash that energy into fat or send it to the liver to make cholesterol and glucose. So that's really the central metabolic issue that most human beings need to overcome is getting the energy flowing back towards muscle. Okay. So by that movement is, is helping us direct that that food energy or, or glucose yes. energy to our muscles. That's exactly right. And by the way, when we weight train, we are adding parking space, right? So I see right. a lot of folks, for example, um, ethnically Asian Indians and some Asians that come in and genetically they have less muscle mass than they'll say Europeans or people from other parts of the world. So they have less parking space, meaning it takes fewer calories for their muscles to become saturated and filled up. And that's why when you look at, for example, the Asian population, they develop diabetes and heart disease at a body weight that's five, 10% lower than other ethnic groups. So they think like they've been hand handed the skinny gene. Look at me, I'm 20 pounds lighter. I can eat whatever the heck they want. But what they don't realize is that energy is being stored in the liver where you can't see it on the outside. It's being expelled as cholesterol. So even though they're lower body weight, because of the lack of muscle mass and because of the extra energy they're putting in their system, they're developing rampant heart disease and diabetes at a much earlier age and at a much lower body weight. So we got to be sort of aware of those nuances. Mm -hmm. So exercise is very important. Diet, I assume, is, is the next thing you probably talk about and look into a lot with your patients. But I mean, are we eating too much? Is, um, <laughs> is the idea of intermittent fasting, I hear a lot about it. Um, and certainly I've practiced myself, but then I hear Great. conflicting evidence saying that actually it's probably not good to do long, long term, uh, maybe more short term. But yeah, what, what's the best way to. So, yeah. So let's eating? jump into fasting because it is the single most popular diet on planet Earth right now at this moment. It's the latest thing. And yeah. I have to say fasting when it's done the right way it can be one of the most effective game-changing ways to eat. And when I say right way versus wrong way, the, the wrong way is it can sometimes become a borderline eating disorder where people are eating, you know, you get so used to eating less that all of a sudden you're not eating a lot of the essential nutrients that your body needs. So some of my patients, especially women, I see this more of when they're doing excessive fasting, they're totally jazzed and energized by the fact that they've lost weight. But, you know, a lot of these patients actually track their body composition. They're actually losing muscle mass. And muscle mass is something we absolutely have to preserve as we get older. That's like one of the number one factors for quality of life, longevity, all that stuff. So really, this is not about weight loss. It's about fat loss, but also retaining and growing muscle. So that's why we have to be careful. So whatever your yeah. fasting window is, if it's too tight, I mean, I have some patients come in, their eating windows like four, between four to six hours. So how are they going to get like 100 grams of protein into that tight window? the nutrients that they need, the different plant-based foods, it's pretty tough to do. So I might do a rigorous fast that's short in that way after I've had a weekend where I just went off and ate like crazy. You know, like if it's like a weekend where I just overstuffed my muscle parking lot, I'm like, okay, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, I've got to get back to equilibrium. So I'll 
I'll do more stringent fasts for recovery from caloric overload. But on a regular basis, I think the average fast of doing like the 18, uh, like the 16, eight, for example, where we have an eight hour eating window. I think that works well, but you know, there's a lot we can talk about nutrition, but the one thing I tell people is just make sure you're getting adequate protein with each meal. Cause that keeps glucose and hunger stable. Some of us have, tend to have a very carby breakfast. We might have a little bit of protein for lunch and then a lot more at dinner. So that's kind of imbalanced. It's best to get at least 30, 35 grams of protein more. If you're heavier, you've got more muscle, with that first meal, that keeps glucose really stable. It helps you build muscle more effectively. And then, of course, some amount of you know healthy fats and then load up on the veggies around that too. So really, all my plates are kind of protein-centric with a lot of vegetables around it, some healthy fats with that as well. And that's just a simplistic. You know, there's so much you know complexity that we layer onto diet. But really, if that's a foundation for most people, they're going to do just fine. They're more balanced meals. The um, Yeah, I heard it recently. I can't remember the guy's name, but it was on a, a podcast I was listening to and he talked about the idea that um, intermittent fasting longer term every day, you know, 16-8, for example, is actually probably detrimental to your health. Is that something you found as well? Well, I think it can be detrimental. Again, it all depends on what you're eating during that eating window. And for a lot of people I've been following for many years, their metabolic numbers look great. I have no concerns at all. I can't imagine. Yeah. And they're eating a very balanced diet that's been guided by myself or the dietitian that I work with. I don't see any issue for that. I think the problem has been the way that we've recommended eating before, which is the three meals, the, the, the two or three snacks that starts at seven or eight in the morning. And often we'll go until 8 p.m., 9 p.m. with people snacking after that. That clearly yeah. has not been the answer that just keeps driving right. insulin up and it, it fades but i think i think for most people 16 8 is good but we also see great benefit from signs from people even doing 14 10 or even in women even a 12 hour fast and even 12 12 that's been shown to reduce breast cancer recurrence in women that have been diagnosed with breast cancer so you can already start so i tell people just start off with you don't want to do something that's too restrictive and not sustainable so just even finishing that dinner time earlier you know yeah. getting that dinner that so it's not really surpassing 8, 8.30 p.m. and getting the late hours, that's key because another me metabolism thing, just like with the sleep, is our metabolic hormones are kind of like day shift workers. In the evening, they tend to go to sleep. So the same hormones that turn food into energy during the day, they shut down in the evening. So the same meal that I have at 1 p.m., if I'm eating at 9 p.m. or snacking after that, those hormones are pretty much inactivated. So what's going to happen is those calories, they're going to get stored as fat. So, you know, we have to sort of think about you know, how do we finish that meal earlier so we can optimize, let the hormones rest. And then by the next day, maybe do some fasting activity. And then when the hormones are revved back up, that's when you want to eat. You're turning on the furnace so you can burn that energy more effectively. Yeah. 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 Okay. And this particular- It sounds like you benefited. About... You've been doing the fasting. Has that been good for you? I've, I've, I dabble in different things. I, I don't at the moment, but what this doctor said was instead of intermittent fasting, which is when I sort of changed, he was just eating something very basic in the morning, like, you know, a bit of avocado and some beans um, right. and an orange, maybe something like that, um, which is now what I've done. So just having a little bit of um, food in the morning, just to keep the metabolism going, I suppose, and then filling it with some protein, and some fats, some good protein right. and fats um, yep. on a smaller dose, basic. So you're almost fasting, but, you're still giving your body some sustenance to, to keep the energy going. Exactly. Yep. Yeah. And, and that's the key thing too, is what's your energy like during the day? Because some of my patients that are over fasting, 
they're too tired to exercise or they'll do very light workouts, but that's about all the body can handle because they're really in an energy deprivation state. And that's another big macro point here is whatever method of eating that you're doing, if it's basically preventing us from being physically active and getting aerobic level exercise at least four to five days a week, then we're literally shooting ourselves in the foot. Because as much as we think about diet, cholesterol, and all these numbers, one message I hammer away people is the number one factor that's linked to heart disease risk that's been shown over several decades is your level of aerobic fitness. Like I ask my patients, go out and do a one mile test. If you can't run, how fast can you actually walk a mile? And write that down on your spreadsheet along with your other numbers. And then six months later, test that after you've been doing aerobic conditioning. When that number improves, like your one one mile walk speed or your jog speed, whatever, that's super powerful. Because I feel like people have become so obsessive about diet now. Should I do keto? Should I do 16, 8, 18-6, 14-10? I'm like, you know what? I think we're micromanaging diet a little bit too much. What is your physical activity status like? Again, what's bedtime like? Are you doing things to manage stress? Let's not put all of our eggs in the fasting nutrition basket, literally, because we're missing out on some of the more important levers. And I'll tell you, during the pandemic, a lot of my patients had had a baseline level of cardio function. It's gone down quite a bit more because a lot of incidental physical activity that we had from going to the grocery store, from going to the work and climbing stairs, going from the parking lot. Now that everybody here is having everything delivered to their doorstep, I mean, their aerobic function has gone down even more because they're not even doing the daily activities of living that we used to do as part of our normal everyday mm. life. So, mm. so it's a big concern there. Very good point. Okay. Finally, I just want to jump into sleep because we've sort of touched on that a little bit now as well. Sure. Um, and I guess this is a very big topic at the moment. Um, we're hearing a lot more about, you know, sleeping longer, not shorter. Um, what is your recommendations around sleep as far as metabolism so, goes? Yeah. I mean, with metabolism, I mean, it is one of the most, and honestly, I've always known this before, but for me to actually make the behavioral change, I had to see what, what the heck was happening with my glucose state overnight. And as I've seen this over and over in patients and seen the studies, there's no doubt that when we end up truncating sleep and making it too short, we're missing out on all the hormones that we talked about earlier. So, so the key thing is, I think there's a magic number that people throw out that everybody should get eight hours of sleep. And I think that's false too, because not everybody needs eight hours of sleep to function and live and thrive. The range, if you look at most studies, is somewhere between seven to nine hours. There are some people, like I said, that six hours, they might do okay. When you're getting down to the five-hour span, like I said, there's very few people that actually have the lucky gene where it's not going to affect their health and their mortality. But yeah. most people fall somewhere between the seven to nine-hour range. And then you basically play around with the timing. And for example, if you you're, if you want to get up consistently, the key is like, even if your work hours are flexible and you're, 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 you run your own business, you do want to keep the waking time consistent. So pick that, you know, most mornings out of the week, I want to get up at 6am and then you work backward from there and just sort of see where your optimal bedtime lands using a wearable or using a phone app to sort of see, you can sort of see after a few days, what that optimal bedtime is, it really maximizes sleep efficiency, meaning what percent of the time you're actually sleeping. So you can play around with the wearables, but I like to keep things simple. Just pick your optimal wake-up time and then work backwards from there. Aim for somewhere between seven to nine hours and sort of see how you do with that. Okay, yeah. And that window of sleep, I mean, should that be sort of between the hours of nine and four, nine and five, ten and, you know, yeah, you mean the bedtime? Yeah, bedtime and wake-up <laughs> right. time because it shouldn't be 1 o'clock until 10 o'clock, really, should it? 
It shouldn't. Yeah. And I have a lot of tech workers that that's the, that's the life they lead. And, you know, I got to say that I was much more dogmatic about that before and said, no, you got to get to bed by this. But but quite frankly, because their work hours are they tend to start later again, you know, rather than just be dogmatic and give them a rule that you must go to bed between 10 and six. I've looked at their numbers. I've looked at their overall health. And if I see that there's no issues and they're performing well, and that's what they want to do, that's fine. One to 10 might work. But yeah, for most people, I'd say the optimal bedtime is probably running somewhere between 9 to 11 p.m. The minute we're getting past 11 p.m., that's when we might be shortchanging ourselves. So the issue with the 1 to 10 a.m. person, like I've got a few of those people that are in that range, is, and especially if they're wearing the aura ring, I do still see that they're getting adequate deep face sleep. They're getting, you know, two hours of deep deep face sleep based on their ring data or their watch data. So, you know, that first half effect, it looks like they're getting enough of that already through that and they're able to wake up later. So they're getting an adequate duration of sleep. But most people, it looks like somewhere between that 9 to 11 p.m. is probably going to be a better time for them to get to bed. Okay. But what about, you know, those chemicals that start to activate in the evenings? Um, wouldn't they be less, you know, you're right to those people that are sleeping? So you're, 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 you're such a good listener. I love the fact that you asked me that. But yeah, based on circadian rhythm, you would think theoretically that that would be the case. And I've seen that in some of the studies, but I'll tell you, I haven't. I haven't been overwhelmed by the evidence that that's a consistent factor in all human beings. So, so literally, if I'm seeing people again, they're performing, their metabolic numbers are fine, great. But you're absolutely right. I mean, I had that discussion with them that, listen, there is some science out there that says that this is probably a bedtime that's too late for you. We're not going to be able to measure this, but this might be having an impact on how your brain's clearing up metabolic toxins, or it might actually have an impact on growth hormone. That's things that, these are things that I can't measure. So just know that this may not be optimal for you. And then we sort of make a decision based on that. But, you know, some of my patients, it's like they love their 1am bedtime or their midnight. No matter what I tell them, I can show them every science research article out there. They're not going to mess with that. So, so it just depends on how hard you want to hold on to that bedtime. Well, it's good news for shift workers potentially and people that have to work, you know, odd hours. Um, right, that you can still have good sleep and optimal sleep that helps um, with your yeah, overall, yeah, well-being. absolutely, yeah. yeah. Shift working definitely is a tough one. I mean, obviously, some people have no other option, but you know, the the World Health Organization has definitely made some pretty strict recommendations around shift work and 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 what the risk to health can be. But listen, I mean, we we need shift workers, right? So so yeah. so then I tell my shift workers that listen, even though your bedtime and wake-up time is not optimal. Again, you want to maximize that sleep and then make sure you're working on the other levers. Instead of stressing out about your schedule, make sure you're getting the usual things, the physical activity. We're focusing on the diet extra hard because it's the imperfect storm of when you have poor bedtimes and now you're mixing in a little bit of the poor diet. Now you're not managing the stress. Most of my patients that develop conditions like early heart disease it's, you know, the rare ones are the ones that have out of control, high blood sugar, cholesterol, or super high blood pressure. The more common scenario is they've got an inch or two of extra belly fat. There may be borderline pre-diabetic. The blood pressure is just a little bit off. So there's no like smoking gun there, but there's a lot of simmering little risk factors that are very easy to overlook. But the combination of all those mild risks together, that can actually cause, you know, pretty significant disease later in downstream. So we want to make sure we're kind of keeping track of that. Okay. And these wearables you talk about, um, actually, I want to go back to sleep for just one second. Oh, of when course, you, yeah. When you sleep for, let's say, eight hours a night on average, what, what percentage of that should be deep and, and REM sleep? And I mean, are there, are there best averages there? 
You know, with the wearable data that's coming out, I mean, we're starting to see some patterns now. Um, And percentage-wise, you know, what happens the first half of the night, it's mostly deep phase and less REM sleep. And then that pattern shifts the second half of the night. What I've seen in myself and many of my patients from wearing the rings or doing the Apple Watch or whatever, typically... Most people, adults, let's say above the age of 35 or 40, you know, younger kids and teens, for example, are naturally just going to get a lot more deep face sleep because like I mentioned, you're generating growth hormone that's helping them actually grow, you know, during that phase. But after age 35, 40, you know, our deep face sleep is going to incrementally go down. But average, I see when people are getting more than 90 minutes or even more than two hours of deep face sleep, that's when they're feeling the best. I see blood sugar numbers are great. Even in my case, when I'm hitting two or more hours of deep face sleep, you know, between two to two and a half hours, that seems like that's kind of a good number for most people to look at. When Mm. deep face sleep is getting to 90 minutes for an hour or less, then we got to really think about what are the things that are preventing us from getting deep face sleep. And those can be a whole host of factors. Physical inactivity is a big one, chronic stress, late activating bed out. You know, that's when I really tell people, if you're missing deep face sleep, you got to try to get to bed earlier because we're missing out on that first half of the night effects. So so that's where you want to really prioritize early bedtimes. Yeah, and I think the wearables certainly help that. I've, I've got a um, a Garmin watch here, and um, oh yeah, it's been it's been yep. great. You know, using that that sleep cycle and being yeah. Able to but I, I do want to say that some people get a little bit anxious with wearables. Like I have to take wearable holidays okay. sometimes because sure. sometimes you look at all this data, and you know, there's some mornings I get up and honestly I feel great, and my aura ring tells me you got to rest and recover. And you, no matter how precise these things are, they still don't replace kind of our own intuitive no. sense of okay, you know, I'm kind of ready today. Or another day I might be fatigued, and my rings tell me you're ready to go. I just kind of listen to my body at that point. So, you know, the wearables are definitely not at the level where they can kind of hack our brain and tell us how motivated we are. So that's right. No, I absolutely agree. Um, Mate, look, fantastic conversation. Thank you for coming on and sharing today. Um, How can people best reach out to you and connect? Yeah, it's been a pleasure. So my blog is where all my content and information lives, and that's at culturalhealthsolutions.com. I know it's a mouthful, but that's where you can find all my other resources. I do podcasts really deeply on these topics. So my show is called Meta Health, M-E-T-A. And then um, I limit my social media exposure, but most of my content you'll find on Instagram at Ronish Sinha MD. So I put scientific articles. I put all these little hacks of what I do throughout the day, the exercise, snacking, all those things. But the best way is to just go straight to the blog and you'll find the resources. And, and I assume you've got some show notes so we can put the links there as well too. Excellent. And that blog again, sorry? Yeah. So that is culturalhealthsolutions.com. Culturalhealthsolutions.com. Yep. Awesome. Mate, thanks so much for sharing. Fantastic. Thanks for the opportunity. Stay well. Guys, check it out at thehiddenwire.com. Until next time, peace, passion, and purpose. See you soon. Thanks, guys, for listening to this episode. I hope you enjoyed what you heard. I hope you love what you're hearing. If you like this episode, guys, or any of the episodes that you're listening to here at The Hidden Why, please do me a favor by sharing it. You can share it with your families. You can share it with your loved ones. You can do that by using your favorite social media channels using the icons on the platform that you're listening to The Hidden Why podcast. Also, guys, if you're a fan of the show, please connect with me. Connect with me at thehiddenwide.com. I love to hear from you. I love to converse with the people that listen to this show to find out what they enjoy, what they don't enjoy, and perhaps if they have any questions or feedback for the show as well. 
You can stay up to date with all that I'm releasing here, guys. I do a solo show every Monday, a three-minute thought every Thursday. I do two interviews a week on a Wednesday and a Saturday, and a book review every Friday. You can stay up to date with all that by subscribing to my newsletter at thehiddenwire.com. Just enter your email address there, and also subscribing to the podcast on the platform that you choose to listen to your podcasts. You can also support the show, guys, by using the Amazon links at thehiddenwire.com. So if you like books, you can get all the books that I review there um, and anything else, really, that you like to purchase through Amazon. So use that link. It helps support the show. And we've also got a deal with Audible, guys. Audible is a fantastic way to listen to all your favorite books. We've got a deal with them so you can get two free books when you subscribe or, yeah, subscribe to a 30-day free trial. So check that out, again, at thehiddenwire.com. Guys, that's it from me. You know what to do. Go out there. Breathe more passion into every single moment. Do everything with greater purpose and in doing so you will discover your hidden why this is the hidden why my name is Lee Manutzi until next time peace passion and purpose see you soon